Welcome to Habitual Excellence, presented by Value Capture. This podcast in our firm is all about helping you and your organization achieve habitual excellence via one unifying focus, one value-based structure, and one performance system. In other words, it's about helping you capture dramatically more value through achieving perfect care and perfect safety for patients and staff. To learn more about Value Capture and our services, visit www.valuecapturellc.com. Well, hi, welcome to Habitual Excellence. I'm Mark Raven. We're joined today by Rachna Shah. She is a professor in supply chain and operations at the Carlson School of Management at the University of Minnesota. Rachna, thanks for joining us. How are you? I'm very good. Thank you for inviting me. Well, sure. Thank you for being here today. Um, can you help fill in you know, some of the details about your background uh, for the audience, please? Yeah, my name is Rachna Shah. I am a professor in Department of Supply Chain and Operations at Carlson School of Management at University of Minnesota. My PhD is from the Ohio State University at Fisher College of Business in what was then called the Department of Management Science. Basically, I study and I'm thrilled about issues of process improvement. So I study uh, what are processes, how do you improve them? And in order to study that, I use the lens of Toyota production system or more commonly uh, use the term lean sort of encapsulates that Toyota production system in academic research. So what I'm known for is my uh, seminal work in how do you measure what lean is? So basically what is lean? How do lean firms differ from non-lean firms? And in terms of structural characteristics as well as behavioral characteristics. Much of my new research also originates from this idea of why do operationally excellent firms uh, fail, especially in terms of operational failure. So why do firms have product recalls, for example, a very practical, a very uh, accessible example of an operational failure in the marketplace. And I study both of these questions, meaning how do firms become operationally excellent and why do operationally excellent firms fail in many different industries, such as automotives, medical devices, pharma, um, even in oil and gas pipeline. So a broad array of industry settings. Okay. And yeah, uh, we, we can link um, to your research in the show notes, but back to the question of how do you measure what lean is or how do you measure the leanness of an organization? I don't know if that's the right way to say it. It's, it's more complicated than being yes, no, lean or not lean. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah. Uh, so actually, if you think about how lean evolved in the U.S., or I would say more broadly, in the Western world from Toyota production system, it sort of happened in a stage-wise manner or in a phase-like manner. So if you go back to the 1990s or even 1980s, people would say, well, lean is, and you can fill in your own blank, lean is JIT Kanbans, lean is uh, total quality management kind of practices, lean is TPM, and maybe there was a little bit of understanding that there was role of employees in a lean organization. But if you notice, each of these uh, are representative or practices and tools 
that underline the lean organization, especially the way lean is sort of evolved from Toyota production system. So in that sense, my research, uh, my PhD research focused on what is lean during that time frame. I think it is very critical to understand lean from a periodic sort of lens because our understanding of lean has evolved over time. Mm -hmm. So my dissertation is towards the end of, uh, I completed my dissertation in 2002. So much of this research is around that time frame. So at the time, lean was uh, being uh, studied from a perspective of tools and practices. And it is very important to kind of know that, uh, keep that perspective in mind. So what my research showed was that lean consists of not just TQM or JIT or TPM practices, but it is really a comprehensive set of very large set of tools and practices, not just on the production floor, but it encapsulates um, a systems view. So it includes suppliers, production ability, and also the customers. So what do customers want? What are customers looking at? So it is a very holistic um, view of what lean is, except now where we are in an understanding, I would say it is a very limited view because our understanding of lean has evolved from tools and practices perspective to a much broader perspective. I think, so the first paper, which I call the seminal paper is looking at what tools, if I were to clarify it now, it would be what tools and practices represent this understanding of lean production system. The second piece that is, I think, of very critical importance is now going back again into 1999, 2000 timeframe, people would have said, especially managers in America would argue, lean could only be implemented in certain types of manufacturing practice mm -hmm. in manufacturing settings. Right. So much of that research was focused on what are the barriers to implementation? And in this second piece, I looked at the three barriers that management was talking about at that point in time. So it was size for scale. So larger firms would implement lean more. Um, age, newer plants would implement lean practices more and unionized versus non-unionized state. And they would have said, well, non-unionization plants are more likely to implement lean practices and tools. So my research sort of uh, sheds light on this particular phenomenon. And what it showed was Yes, there is a scale advantage, meaning if larger plants are more likely to implement lean practices, but it also showed that unionization was not as big a barrier as management thought. Mm -hmm. Similarly, we also showed in this paper uh, that age of the plant, meaning it was not just newly new plants that were implementing, but all sorts of plants were implementing, including very old plants that were implementing lean uh, production practices. Mm -hmm. So those were sort of the two pieces. I can talk a little more about other things as we move forward. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I would agree with your assessment. And I've seen you know, over over time, um, from from being taught in university settings and being out in the workplace for 25 years, that that understanding has evolved and and gotten better over time. Um, yeah, you know, think back to an operations management class in 1994. The Toyota production system was really taught in terms of uh, product flow and material flow in a factory. So it was good education, excuse me, but I think it was a little. Uh, it was sort of a subset. Mm -hmm. of, of practices. 
Yeah, I would agree. And so actually, uh, as the as my thinking has evolved, and I would say the willingness of leading journals to accept this alternative thinking or growing thinking has evolved, I think we would see more implementations in broader settings. In fact, one of my papers, we examined uh, whether lean can be implemented in healthcare settings. Again, this is, you know, now it is conventional wisdom. Why not? It does implement, uh, you can implement lean in healthcare settings and in construction and in entrepreneurship uh, sort of activities. But at the time when we were studying it, it was a very new phenomenon. And what we showed was that, yes, the, the form of lean, meaning the ideas behind lean can be implemented in a broad set of settings, including front service healthcare delivery processes. So in this particular paper, we were looking at uh, lean practices in delivering healthcare for heart attacks. And this is not back office operations where you schedule um, a surgical um, a surgical room for an open heart surgery. This is uh, chest pain induced heart attacks, which are commonly called STEMI heart attacks. This is the heart attack you feel when you're sitting at home, you feel chest pains and you go to the hospital. The intervention is simple. You have angioplasty as the intervention, meaning ballooning, so to to facilitate blood flow. But uh, because it is sort of non-repetitive for most hospital systems, it is dealing with patient of different types. So you don't have standardized care that you think you can provide in a manufacturing setting. We showed that lean principles translate equally well in healthcare settings where patient is also involved. So meaning meaning a large variation of patients are coming through. Right. Yeah. And I, I think um, most of the audience for this podcast would, would agree um, with, with that assertion. And, um, you know, we'll, we'll point people to some of the uh, research that you've published um, to help um, show that. And, you know, so I think a lot of people listening would be interested. I, I know I'm interested. If you can talk to the, you know, as much as you can generalize the state of lean instruction when it comes to um, academic teaching and, and research, is there still variation in that understanding or how do you, how do you view things? Yeah, so I think I would speak more generally from academic perspective, which to me is more uh, research perspective in terms of what you're publishing instruction or pedagogical approach to teaching lean. So that is the teaching perspective and also where the state of understanding in practical world is. So field of studies, if you will, what you see when you talk to managers. And I think there is a fairly big disconnect between these three perspectives. Mm -hmm. So as we talked about um, the focus in in teaching continues to remain on practices and tools perspective with the idea. So if you think about, you know, what is lean and what do you get out of it? Meaning what are the benefits that you um, appropriate when you implement lean practices? I think on those two frames, most of the academic research is still focused on the tools and practices sort of principles idea, uh, which includes like Kanban, 5S, these kind of tools and practices uh, that I'm talking about. And on the benefit side, when we talk about benefits to why managers, I teach mostly MBAs and or executive MBAs or high, you know, people who've been out for five to 10 to 15 years, the benefits 
that they will accrue when we are making the case is focused on cost, quality, and perhaps speed. So cost in terms of basically bottom line cost reduction or cycle time, so you would get speed benefits Mm -hmm. and quality in terms of zero defects, so you would get better quality, which means again, cost proposition. So on both of those, it is much more sort of objective kind of things that we can quantify. Now, what is missing from this perspective, and if we go back to, you know, the Toyota production system, and people who studied it a lot, for example, I'll count myself in that group, the deep understanding of the other things that are around. So what are these other things that are around that are missing from the academic and teaching perspective? I would sort of uh, put it on into sort of three bullets, if you will. Mm-hmm. So I would say the role of top management in creating a culture of improvement. So we spend a lot of time currently on continuous improvement idea, but we do not spend sufficient time on how do you create a culture of improvement in an organization and the role of top management within that culture of organization. So you could say that the training towards top management teams is somewhat lacking in my mind. Mm -hmm. The second piece that I think is missing is the importance of learning and developing this culture of improvement. Um, It is not just, okay, let's learn about how to implement Kanban and how to implement Kaizen, but really what does organizational learning mean? We do not link learning with these outcomes that we desire. Uh, in our workforce as well as in outcomes. And the third one I would say is on focus on behaviors. So for example, if I really want a desired state of employees who are empowered to point out problems, what kind of this uh, behavior should we see? And I'm talking mostly at the middle to top management level. I think we've done a very good job of understanding the the importance of continuous improvement at the employee shop floor frontline levels. But I think that lessons have not been well developed for instruction for the top management level. There are some uh, schools that are doing that, but I'm talking more in general uh, stereotypes. So that is on the, what should be the status of lean? So I would say again, just to reiterate, uh, you know, role of top management in creating a culture of improvement. I would, second point would be the importance of learning. And the third point would be the importance of what behavior should we see at this top management, middle management level. On the benefit side, I think we have completely missed the, benefits that can be accrued to um, for safety, for example. So cost, quality, speed, those are very important, but the uh, outcomes that, if we were to implement it correctly in terms of behaviors and in terms of learning and in terms of culture, culture of improvement, we should also see benefits of uh, on safety. We should also see benefits on employee well-being, which is very key part when you go back to Toyota production system and the intent of lean originally. And the third piece that I think uh, we are missing is if we have well, uh, healthy employees, employees that are that feel safe, that feel well in the organization, this idea of employee turnover. 
I think if we can manage safety, if we can manage well-being, we, we should also see an impact on low turnover amongst employees in organizations. Right. So that is how I see the sort of input equation and the output equation that is missing from academic and instructional activity. So when it comes to teaching um, executives or, or senior leaders, some of the more cultural elements of lean, um, can, can you talk a little bit about the um, influence um, that Paul O'Neill um, has had in, in, in your view? Yeah, I think for people who knew Paul O'Neill and for who understood his intent, um, I think they, there is no doubt that that made an impact but the message has been very narrowly distributed. Mm. So the question is like, it's a very meaningful sort of link, what the linkages he made between process improvement can also result, and I'm saying process improvement in a very generic sense, but this idea of lean, or you want to call Toyota production system, but this idea of improving processes should not be disengaged from, disentangled from continuous improvement of culture. Mm -hmm. I think that was his message. And if you do that well, the output, the, out, the impact on uh, safety uh, is critical. You can start from implementing uh, continuous improvement for, of culture and get to safety, or you can start with safety, which is where he started from, from and created the culture of continuous improvement. To me, they are one and the same, whether you start from focus on safety and bring it down to the level of how my, my an employee's job is linked to the safety equation, or you start with you know, implementing the right practices and tools, the right culture, the right focus on learning and behaviors, and you will have an outcome, uh, a perceptible outcome on safety. It doesn't matter. But to your question of the importance of Paul O'Neill's message, I think if we could uh, distribute it broader right. and make it more systematic, I think that would be very helpful in linking lean with these other outcomes of safety, employee well-being, and uh, other other uh, more uh, measurable outcomes. Yeah, yeah. And I, I agree. The, the team at Value Capture is certainly doing what we can to spread uh, Mr. O'Neill's message, you know, through this podcast, you and other guests um, sharing about him. And, you know, I, I will put in a quick mention um, of uh, a book that we've compiled of some different speeches that Mr. O'Neill gave. Um, even though those speeches were directed at healthcare audiences, we think there's very broad um, applicability for leaders. And, and so that book, uh, it's a free PDF and you can also get it through Amazon. We, uh, we call it a playbook for habitual excellence, because that's a phrase that um, came to mind. And, and some of the people who worked for Mr. O'Neill described it as such, that he gave a playbook. It wasn't just you know general goals or admonitions, but there are certain practices, as you were referring to it, I think, you know the role of top management, as he demonstrated. And I think this notion of habitual excellence, uh, which was a key phrase, I don't know if we talked about it, Mark, before, but I was very fortunate to have met Paul uh, for a long period of time when he came to Minnesota and gave a talk, not only gave a talk, he spent an entire day here. Yeah. And uh, this notion of habitual excellence was not just a phrase that he used, but he 
embodied it in many different ways, not in the just in the workplaces that he worked at. But when you talk to him, that that came through. Uh, I think excellence is not something that you go and do at just work or in your role as a manager, but it is really a habit. Mm. And if you can create uh, what should I call the working conditions under which every employee can exhibit these uh, behaviors that underlie this habitual excellence or create conditions where employees are free to uh, exercise this habit. I think that would be a very key, uh, that could be, that could take us to the next step. In the same vein, I would say while value capture is doing a great job of advertising his message, I wish there was more in terms of uh, collaborations where we could uh, use some of that or we could have some of the maybe more intense collaborations where the, you could come to my classes and talk about this notion of habitual excellence and the importance of habitual excellence follow Neil's message to getting broader uh, performance outcomes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so let, let's, yeah, let's continue brainstorming and talking about different ways we can try to um, share that message and inspire others. And, you know, I think Mr. O'Neill's words really hold up, um, you know, the, the you know, video of him on YouTube or the transcripts in the book. Um, it's really, really powerful. And yeah, we, we, we agree. We want more people to learn and get that message and um, try to put that playbook into practice. Yeah. Agreed. Um, so maybe, you know, final question to maybe tie things together. You know, I think a lot of times, there, um, you know, or people talk about the importance of engaging frontline staff, but I think sometimes organizations uh, or, you know, top leaders try just delegating it all to frontline staff and say, you know, you, you must go forth and improve. But, you know, to maybe wrap things up again, like what, what's one of the main things that top management needs to do to create that environment instead of just dictating you must improve? How do they create the environment? where improvement happens uh, more naturally, if you will. Yeah, so there is a lot of research that is done on this particular topic of how do you engage and empower frontline employees? Um, I will mention maybe a couple of things because those uh, probably stand out the most in my mind. Uh, One of the key criteria of engaging engaging and empowering employees is Uh, employee suggestion program. So many, many companies have that, you know, if you see something wrong, please point to it and we will try to do something about it. That is sort of an easier way of engaging uh, employees. However, you know, some companies are very successful at eliciting uh, suggestions, but when you sort of look at uh, suggestions received versus suggestions uh, implemented, there is a very big disconnect. So there is no bigger, uh, I would say, negative impact on employees' morale, if you will, when you ask them what you would do, what you could do better, and then don't do it. It is like teaching in class. I like I ask my students, how could I make this class more fun or more a better learning experience for you? And they give me uh, they give me sort of specific sites, and I don't do it. My ratings are going to be terrible for sure. Uh, the second thing I think is. Uh, Uh, in addition to uh, employee suggestion programs, is this idea of psychological safety. So I see a problem and I want to point to the problem, but do I feel safe enough in this work environment um, to point to these problems? And this notion of how you can create 
the psychological safety in workplace. There are, I can send you a few examples if you would like. There is a way to measure it for companies that are interested in understanding whether their, their environment is a psychological safe environment or not. But this is key to uh, engaging employees in, improve, in actually improving uh, the work conditions themselves. Uh, the last thing is recognition. So you are, you're inviting suggestions, you're giving them sort of in organizational theory, the psychological safety can be uh, implemented when uh, the conditions are right. And the conditions are right comes under this notion of decision allocation rights, meaning you cannot just tell employees, go do it. You need to give, get, give them the ability, no, not ability, the, the uh, freedom to think that they can actually take that action. So that decision allocation right to front level employees is very critical in exercising in in exercising making the decision. So you need psychological safety for the uh, employee to think I can make this, uh, that I should be able to point this problem out and decision allocation right to say, well, I see this problem, I can also fix it. So those two sort of, sort of go hand in hand. The last thing that I would say is recognition. And recognition, not in terms of dollars, there is a lot of research that shows recognizing employee um, actions by, for example, the monthly, uh, monthly recognition, monthly pizza parties, and sometimes you don't even need pizza parties uh, to honor employees. But to recognize employee um, actions is one of the easiest ways for organizations to um, improve or implement the desired behaviors that they want to see in their employees. I would make one last pitch. We, okay. as organizations, have spent a lot of time on KPIs. But I don't think very many organizations have a focus on KBIs. So you think about, you know, if you want certain behaviors in your employees, middle management, top management, there should be a similar focus on KBIs. Key behavioral. Yes, indicators. Indicators. Great. Well, um We'll, uh, I'll, I'll ask you to follow up and we'll, we'll put links to different articles and, and references that, that you recommend uh, into the show notes uh, for this episode sure. so to, to build upon um, and, and to go uh, deeper into these topics. <clears throat> I appreciate you sharing that with us today. So um, our guest here today, again, um, has been Rachna Shah. She is a professor of supply chain and operations at the Carlson School of Management. Uh, Rachna, thank you so much for joining us and, and sharing your perspectives with us today. Thank you, Mark, for giving me this opportunity. It was great joy, and I look forward to any future uh, conversations. Likewise. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Habitual Excellence, presented by Value Capture. We hope you'll subscribe to the podcast, and please also rate and review it in your favorite podcast directory or app. To learn more about Value Capture and how we can help your organization on this journey to habitual excellence, visit our website at www.valuecapturellc.com.